I have this feeling back in my in my in my heart of uncertainty. Now I'm like the the rug has been pulled. The government that I trusted with my information, the government that I the country that I love and serve, that I've been serving since I was old enough to shut the door in my face. door I knock on just seems to tell me no and I was thrown a curveball and right across the plate and when I'm up to bat you know I just swing away welcome back to what we will abide I am your host Sam Schindler and this is episode 51 of what we will abide the name of this episode is waveland part 3. In it, I interview Andrea Alarcon, who is a young woman from Westchester, New York, Mount Kisco, Mount Kisco to be specific. Westchester is a county that is north of New York City. Um, it is a place that I grew up and a place that I still have friends. And in fact, my father still lives there. Andrea's story is very different from mine, as you will soon see. Uh, this is an interview that I conducted almost two years ago. And I am deeply remiss in that I am only publishing it now, but I am happy to present it to you now at a time when, let's just say, for the sake of being somewhat diplomatic, as far as the United States of America and immigration legislation, immigration policy, and the conversation about immigration goes, it's an ugly, ugly time. I am recording this introduction just after the dual shooting over the weekend in Dayton and El Paso. There have been numerous headlines once again about our president and his abject racism, xenophobia, and call to violence and fanning the flames of white supremacy that are to blame directly for these and previous shootings, like the one in Pittsburgh, for example, by people who claimed to espouse his ideas of cleansing this country of those who don't belong. I don't really have anything new to add to the story, any more evidence to the argument against that perspective. I don't even really think that we have a duty to give it airtime. I think, as I've long thought, that when the president tweets, America should ignore him because everything he says is obfuscatory, everything he says is meant to distract Everything is meant to play to a base of people who are drawn to his every word and believe everything he says, no matter how outrageous or harmful. I don't really trust that he believes the things he says, um, although a person who espouses racist ideology and racist propaganda is a racist. See, I don't see a difference between the two things. Many people will argue that, well, he's just, he doesn't really believe the things he says. He's just playing to his base. He's just trying to get reelected. That all may be true, but when you say racist things, when you talk about caravans of drug addicts and rapists, you're being racist whether you mean to or not. This is all stuff you already know. I'm not telling you anything new. I'm not breaking open any new ground. I'm trying to offer a platform for Andrea to tell her story so that you can hear it in the context of what's happening in 2019, even though she told the story in 2017, when things were 
bad, but not nearly as bad as they are right now. Although there were children being separated from their parents at the border, we weren't hearing about it as much, and there wasn't the same kind of justification, bizarre, hideous justification for that kind of behavior. ICE was around, but not as active or as aggressive or as proactive as Trump has given them cause to be. She tells us her story with an eye towards what could happen if certain programs are terminated and if certain kinds of language become policy. I think that Andrea was being largely prescient when she offers her concerns about a coming future. I don't know that she imagined that it would be that it would take the route that it has, but maybe she did because of the past that she endured and the things that she's overcome. I'm deeply grateful to her for divulging as much as she did about her past, about her roots, about her family. To be perfectly honest, there's a part of me that is hesitant to post this episode because I don't trust that it'll go out there on the airwaves and not do some harm, potentially to her and to her family. That's the kind of world we live in now. Me, a veritable nobody in central Pennsylvania, talking to maybe a hundred of you if I'm lucky, could put someone's life in danger. So my name is Andrea Alarcon, and I came to this country when I was five years old in 1998 uh, from Ecuador. And I am now 24 years old. And I um, currently, I, amongst other things, I work for an organization called Neighbors Link. Neighbors Link is a nonprofit organization, um, and our mission is that we work on the healthy integration of immigrants into the community. Uh, and so our strategy is through empowerment, employment, and education. And so all of our programs uh, kind of circulate around those three strategies. Um, where I am involved is the empowerment and employment part. So I am the manager of operations and the worker center. So I field jobs, so work um, homeowners call Neighbors Link, not just homeowners, people in the community um, that need general labor, for instance, landscaping help or um, someone is moving or needs boxes, you know, boxes moved from their basement to their attic or even carpentry work or mason, uh, if someone needs a mason or a painter, even more skilled work. We have a database of our clients that are uh, day laborers that come from many backgrounds, and most of our clients are immigrants. Um, and then we just connect the work that needs to be done to the worker. And we are not a job agency. And so the way I got involved with Neighbors Link, I actually started volunteering for them in high school. And I didn't know that I was undocumented. You didn't know? I didn't know until, until my friend started to apply for their driver's license. Right. And so, you know, at, at this point I was in high school and I was already very involved in my community. Um, 
I needed to get around. You know, my, my, my parents couldn't drive me anymore. I was too involved. And so my friends were getting their licenses. And I said, well, I need one too. And so let's get started. I'm from New York. I, I reside in New York. Um, Westchester is the suburb, the outskirts of New York City. So I am about a 50-minute car ride from New York City, Westchester County. And so I asked my my mom, you know, let's get started. I need, you know, I need a car. I need to get around. And she sat me down and she said, well, you can't. And I said, what do you mean I can't? And so she didn't know how to explain it to me. And she felt that she had betrayed me in a way. I call my counselor from school because I just, I got so upset with my mom and I just didn't want to talk to her. I didn't understand. I called my counselor and I told her, and my mom used the language illegal alien. And that was the first time I heard that vocabulary. And I said, illegal, doesn't that mean I committed a crime? Like what? <laughs> so I called my counselor and she, and she took a deep breath and she said, well, you're going into your junior year of high school. And so what you need to be even more concerned about is how you're going to pay for school. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she said, well, forget about the license. If you're, you know, an illegal immigrant here, then you can't, you cannot apply for um, financial aid through the government, which is the FAFSA form that I had heard about as well. Um, And so my, I felt like my, you know, my, my world suddenly came crashing down. I felt like I didn't know who I was, like who I was in a sense. And, and it was a really weird time in my life because my parents have always instilled in me to be proud of who I am, to be unapologetic. And so illegal alien kind of became another adjective to describe who I am. And I didn't know how to feel. And so that was my first encounter with my undocumented status. First, my driver's license, and quickly thereafter, how am I going to pay for college when I have to apply? <laughs> what, is, yeah. what is your parents' status? My mom came to this country on a visa, and right away she was given a driver's license, you know, a social security number, um, and thereafter a driver's license. And so my mother still is grandfathered into that kind of pro- program. So she's actually she's a housekeeper. So she is an independent contractor and, you know, does her taxes like that. We were in a process to obtain our citizenship um, through the due process for 12 years. We gave our information to the lawyer, to the government, and through her efforts, my, my father was temporarily given, um, you know, a work authorization for the, tw- for the amount of years that the process was in place. Uh, and so once we were denied our mm. citizenship because of this lawyer's malpractice, uh, my dad suddenly lost that benefit of um, work authorization. And he's a very honest man. So he told them right right off the bat, you know, this is what happened. This is my situation. And so they, um, they, are, they honor that. Be, coming from a background of um, sacrifice and just seeing my parents work so hard to obtain the American dream and come to this country and you know, I already felt like I needed to prove to them that their efforts were worth are worthwhile. So I've always had that feeling, and even more so when I understood my undocumented status. And so 
comes come June end of juniors mid uh, start of senior year of high school, I became very vocal about my undocumented status. And remember back in 2010, 11, when I was a junior and senior in high school, the DACA was not implemented. It wasn't even undocumented immigrant. It was illegal alien. And so I just felt like there has to be more people like me. I was here since I was five years old. There's no way that I'm being marked as an illegal alien. Like I need to, I need to speak up. I need people to understand that I am undocumented. I am an illegal alien, but I, I feel just, like an American. Yes, exactly. I'm just like, just like my peers. I, and even I dare to say even more involved in my community than most of my peers. And so I just felt betrayed. I, I felt confused. And so, you know, I said, you know what, people need to hear me out. <laughs> and I think that also goes into play with my, the way my parents raised me, you know, you got to be proud of who you are. And, and so I said, okay, I'm part of who I am is illegal alien. So here we go. Like, I'm going to be proud of this. And so I uh, used my story and my parents' sacrifice um, as a way to get money for school. And so I ended up winning in 2011, Youth of the Year of the Boys and Girls Club. And with that came $3,000 for school, which in in my head, I was like, well, that's a lot of money. But for school, <laughs> it's just books. And so after researching and researching, you know, what schools I can and cannot go into, go to, um, New York State has a law where they do cannot discriminate against um, immigration status. And so uh, and pub- public schools, that is. And so um, I was looking into SUNY, which stands for S- uh, State University of New York Schools. Um, and I also applied to my other dream schools. Which one of them was University of Maryland and Boston University. And so I got accepted to all my dream schools and all of the State University of New York. And I got a letter from the University of Maryland saying that you've been accepted, but due to your immigration status and due to your inability to work, um, we don't see a way for you to be able to pay school. And so shut the door in my face. Like you're accepted, but not really because you can't pay for school and you're undocumented. And so I chose SUNY Albany. For my first two years, my parents worked their butts off and paid out of pocket about $23,000 for me to go to school. And the guilt that I felt, oh my goodness. You know, if you're a citizen of the United States and you are uh, a citizen of of the state of New York, you can go to state schools. It's not free. I mean, it used to be, Um, but you can go to state schools for a lot less than the number you just quoted. Yes, so exactly. you earned the grades, you earned your way into the school, you know, you didn't get any special favors from anyone, nope. it wasn't like, nope. you, you did what everybody else did, and uh-huh. you should have, by rights, been entitled to, because you, you, it's not like you, you know, snuck in line, right? No, that's you, right, no, 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 no. You worked all the way through since kindergarten, mm-hmm. did what everybody else did, you passed all the state tests, New York is, is infamous for its standardized tests, it's... Huh. Telling me, right. you know, <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, I grew up in Westchester, also, so I know. Oh, you did. Oh, cool. Yeah, I grew up in New Rochelle, so so I, I know all about this. <laughs> and and it, when it comes time, like they're like, well, yes, but also no. And it seems as if it, it, they're treating you like an out of state person, whereas actually Maryland is treating you as an out of country person. Yes, so just exactly. making that starkly 
obvious. Right. And so, you know, I talk about this, you know, I brushed through it, but, you know, living through that, you know, like the school, SUNY Albany, you know, asked me to prove to them, you know, my residency, like I had to prove to them that I went to Bedford Hills Elementary School, that I had to like show them report cards. And like, I had to like prove myself in my mind, I was like, okay, well, are any of my peers doing this? (laughs) What's going on? (laughs) Um, and of course my mom is feeling guilty and, you know, apologizing every two seconds. I'm like, listen, mom, like no one just leaves their home country. Just, oh, let's just for fun, go into a foreign country and see what happens. Like I understood from a very early age that my parents left Ecuador because the government has, has been very corrupt. Um, my dad, we used to be a banker at the, when my parents decided to come to this country and um, his bank was close, like it was closing. There was, there were, there weren't any opportunities for work for my, my mom was, um, she used to sell clothing, um, from Colombia uh, in Ecuador. And so that wasn't going well and they were desperate. And my mom, you know, she had two little, my sister is, um, two years older than me. She, at the time I was one, my sister was three and she was like, listen, I gotta, I have to think about my my daughter's futures. And so from a very early age, you know, I understood that. And so when my mom, when the time came when, you know, SUNY Albany was asking me for all these things and, you know, she would apologize. I just hug her and tell her, you know, thank you. Thank you for doing this. Like people in this country are calling us illegal. I'm calling you a hero. You know, you are my hero. (laughs) And so like, I'm forever grateful for the move that my parents made. Two years into college, feeling very guilty. My parents, you know, they were paying straight out of pocket, twenty-two, $23,000, and I couldn't help them. I didn't have a work permit. I didn't have driver's license, like a social security number, nothing, none of that. So I was like, how can I help my parents? How can I do this? How can I do this for them? I remember this very clearly. My mom called me February of 2012, and she's crying. She said, "I we can't afford this anymore. You've got to come back home you got to withdraw from you, Albany. We can't do this anymore. And I just like, I couldn't believe what I, I couldn't believe it. I said, wait a minute. I earned this. I, I'm, I want to help. I, I know that if I could work, I would help you pay for school. Like this is not fair. And so that same year I withdrew, I withdrew from you, Albany. I was, it was summer of 2012 and DACA was implemented. And I remember talking to my sister about this and we were like, wait a minute, this means that we could potentially have a work authorization and a driver's license, but we in but in turn, I have to give all my information to the government. The government was inviting us to give up all of our information, and in turn, we would get a work permit and and we could apply for a driver's license. We had to see if we were eligible first because to be, uh, to be able to be a DACA recipient, you have to be you have had to be under the age of. Uh, 15 when you came to this country you had you had to show good moral standing no criminal record um, a certain GPA Um, you had to prove that you are either accepted to a university or um, a post-grad program or into the military or navy and so it was a very rigorous process we had to prove again throughout my life I've felt or I've had to prove myself to this country like over and over my sister and I went for it we did it we applied we got accepted what an empowering feeling it was to get accepted into the DACA program 
And then to reinstate myself into you Albany because, hey, I can work now and I can help my parents pay for school. And so not only did I help them, I completely picked up my tuition tab. I applied to be a waitress and a bartender at Dave & Buster's in Albany, New York. Um, I might have exaggerated my experience a little bit. <laughs> and I got the job and I was a full-time student, a full-time waitress, and a part-time intern. I don't know how. No, I did not. No, I didn't. Oh my God. For my next two years, I paid my whole way through school because of DACA. People have this misconception that DACA recipients uh, benefit from government funding. No, we still aren't able to apply for financial aid through the government, through um, any benefits, food stamps, none of, none of that. None of work permit and driver's license. A lot of people take that for granted. I have a friend that waited until he was 23 to get his license. I find myself proving not only to the country, but to my friends, hey, this is my situation. I've always been super vocal to even to motivate my friends. Like, hey, you are so lucky that you are born with just all these privileges to be able to move forward in the world. How did people respond? Yeah, you don't sound like you ever minced words, especially in the later years, especially when you were in college, when it became blatantly clear um, just how much you had to work for this. How did people respond to that and how do they respond to you? They just kind of look at me with these wide eyes and say, you are so strong. And I look at them like, I'm just living the life that I have to live. People ask me, uh, people of, to my face ask me, why don't you just go through the due process? Why can't you just do the right, like do it the right way and become a citizen? And I, to that, I say the immigration system is broken, especially after 9-11, there are so many limitations as an undocumented immigrant. No one wants to be in that situation. My, Like I said, my family, we were in the process. First of all, it's very expensive. Lawyer fees, to, be, to have a lawyer, an immigration lawyer, work on your immigration case, and especially if you're a family, that's a lot of money. Second, it takes a lot of time, years, years, because the immigration system is totally broken, not to mention the malpractice that goes on. As you experienced Yes, as we, as my family and I experienced. And then throughout the process, we're treated like criminals. We're treated like we're not, when we go, when we've gone to um, interviews or, or um, meetings with the, with the lawyer and, and um, different agencies of the government, they don't look at you in your eyes. They kind of just, they're very rude and like to just hear over and over throughout the process, like you don't belong here. Like you, like just all these all this negative feedback about me not being an American and how like I'm Ecuadorian and I should be sent back. And it's like, you're going to send me, you might as well send me to Mars because this is my, this is where I grew up, a kindergarten through college into my professional career. Like America is what I know. I am American in my heart before I am Ecuadorian because I only spent time in Ecuador from birth till four and a half years old. The immigration system is totally broken and it's easier said than done, 100%. And not to mention, part of the reason why my family and I were um, denied was because in on my passport and on my sister's passport, there's a, a seal that we, okay, so like two days after we came, so we came in May 19th of 1998. In May 21st of 1998, there's a stamp 
that says May 21st, 1998, that we left the country and there's no seal, like there's no stamp that says we came back. We never left the country again. And so my mom didn't even realize it was in our passports and the lawyer didn't even, maybe she realized, maybe she didn't. But at the interview, we were all the way at our interview process. Like I could almost taste citizenship. I swear I almost tasted it. And then the interviewee is like, well, you guys left the country two days after you came and there's no re-entry. So how did you get back in here? And I was like, what? I never left again. Like I never left the country. And so I've heard stories of friends, colleagues, humans work at the airport and make mistakes. And how can we are no, an undocumented immigrant is and no standing to be arguing with those kinds of things. And so that is part of the reason why we got denied, because I think the government thinks that we are lying in, in some way. And it's a clerical mistake. Yes. Yes. Oh, my goodness. And I, I first of all, I mean, I, I, I think crossing the border is a very, very, very scary and courageous act. Um, and I was I wouldn't have been able to do it at five. I don't think with my sister that was seven and my grandma, like it just doesn't make sense. And so we didn't, we couldn't argue that. And we didn't feel empowered to argue that either. And so there are so many moving parts. People that are undocumented are typically under the poverty, poverty line anyways. And so how can you even afford a lawyer to handle all, to even navigate through this crazy immigration system in another country when there's, it's so hostile for undocumented immigrants. Obviously, this this government, this country, has been pretty terrible with its immigration policy. And, and like, it's not like that's not a, it's not like that's a secret. Like everybody knows that. Democrats right. know it. Republicans know it. Tea Party people know it. Everybody knows it. Um, and yet, despite the fact that we had you know eight years of a supposedly democratic president, yes, we got yes DACA, but could have been so much more. And now down the line, we get another election in 2016 and things shift dramatically. The climate, the atmosphere shifts oh, dramatically. Yeah. We get a candidate right prior to the election who makes all kinds of wild, blatantly false, incendiary claims um, in order to kick up a sense of fear um, in his base you know, you, you you remember, unfortunately, all of the nasty language that he used and all of the ridiculous apocryphal stories that he told in order to yes. kick that up. Then somehow uh, the the guy gets elected. And so now we have all of that rhetoric turned into potential mm -hmm. policy. Let's look at the last 12 months. Where do you stand? What are you doing? I have this feeling back in my in my in my heart of uncertainty now I'm like, the, the rug has been pulled. The government that I trusted with my information, the government that I, the country that I love and serve, that I've been serving since I was old enough to, shut the door in my face again. <laughs> and I feel sad and angry, but I also feel brave and courageous. And I feel like because of my unapologetic personality. Um, I, I felt the the moral obligation to be in the forefront of all of this and humanize DACA. DACA recipients are contributing to communities across the United States. What is going to happen to these communities if DACA recipients disappear from this country? Community activists, 
farm educators, translators, lawyers, um, white collar professionals that are DACA recipients that are contributing to their communities. If you don't want to think about the effects that uh, revoking DACA is going to have on DACA recipients, think about the communities that they serve. There are plenty of DACA recipients in the military. And so those thoughts for the last 12 months have driven me to be a voice for people that feel in the shadows as DACA recipients. I have family members, coworkers, and friends that feel utterly ashamed and embarrassed, hopeless and negative about their situation. And I speak out for these people. I understand that it's not about it's not just me. It's 800,000 people across the United States that go above and beyond to prove themselves to the country, the only country they know. And so all of these thoughts are what drive me to work at Neighbors Link and help the immigrant community, whether you come from Haiti or from Ecuador, or from Ireland, Australia. We have a very diverse group of immigrants immigrant clients at Neighbors Link. And so I I feel so impact every single day I wake up so happy to go to work because I identify with the immigrant community and I feel a sense of, like I said, moral obligation to at least in my community in Westchester in New York to make sure that we are being responsible and being healthy in the way that we integrate everyone into the community. So when you walk into Neighbors Link in Mount Kisco in Westchester, you walk in and you see the whole community working in a very holistic way together. So you, we have over 700 volunteers. We have day laborers, volunteers, staff, board members, all in one place. And when I walk in there every morning, I'm like, this is what a community should look like. I say yes to all these opportunities, not because I want the limelight, because it's actually very emotional for me. I say yes because, again, I speak on behalf of 800,000 DACA recipients, and most of them don't feel comfortable coming out. Like my sister, like my sister's husband. My sister's husband um, is a DACA recipient that actually can't renew. If your work permit expires between now and May March 8th of 2018, you can renew for another two years. That only applies to 150,000 people. My sister and I are part of that group. My sister's husband is not. They have a two-year-old son. And so I think about him when I talk about DACA. I have a serious case of survivor's guilt because I can renew. And until 2020, I have a work permit. That's still super uncertain. Two years goes by in the blink of an eye. And so what is going to happen after that? So I still feel a sense of uncertainty, but further down the line. I, I have a, a, one of my best friends. She goes to Pace Law School. And she is the most articulate, go-getting, badass person. Oh, my God. And she's a DACA recipient. And she wants to be a lawyer. And she can't renew her DACA. And it expires in January. I, I feel a sense of empowerment being in the forefront of all of this. And feeling like I'm making a dent, at least in my community, the way that I speak out. Um, and so it's helping me to cope with all of these emotions, being an activist for not just DACA, but for all of the social injustices that I, that I face every day. 
through my um, academic achievement and my, my achievements and my professional achievements and my activism work, I, I want to prove to people, I want, I want to scream at the top of my lungs, like, I am an undocumented immigrant, I'm a DACA recipient, and look at what I'm doing. Like, this is, Im- this is an immigrant. Like, I am an immigrant. I'm so proud to call myself an immigrant, an immigrant or a non-immigrant. Like, I don't see a difference, honestly. I just, it's a label, like you said. There's a tension here, which is, you know, the people that you talk to all the time who are born here, like, take it for granted, right? And then you're, you know, practically born here, you know, by all, by, by all accounts. Like, you have lived the majority of your life as an American. How do you feel about this country is really the question. The tension in my mind is you love this country. You, you love the opportunities that it provides, despite all of its flaws. And there are many, many flaws. Yes. Ultimately, it has... Even though it has put you through the ringer, it has given you something that I think you would argue you probably wouldn't get anywhere else, or at least not in the same way. And and here, this country now, whether it's like people or media or the White House, are saying, get out in a really kind of nasty way. And how do you reconcile that? I could understand where people are coming from. I, always, I think about this all the time. What if I... I, I never left Ecuador and I'm a, I'm a citizen of Ecuador and people that don't look like me, you know, white, blonde hair, blue eyes, tall immigrants from Europe come into Ecuador. How would I feel? Right. And so that is a very powerful, eye-opening thought for me. And it makes me appreciate citizens of this country that open their arms to me because and this might sound weird. I don't know if I would do that. If white, blonde, tall Europeans came to Ecuador, my assumption would be that they would just be colonists. Uh, <laughs> right. They would, they would just be imperialists. <laughs> turn into like their own personal banana farm. Like to me, like oh that's, that's the, like that's what Europeans do. So <laughs> yeah, if I were you, I would be pissed off about Europeans coming into Ecuador. Cause they're coming to, you know, take your land. And no, then but, but, if I were to do it all over again, I wouldn't change a thing, even my immigration status. You know why? Because it's made me, it's built my character. I don't know if I would be this great activist, outspoken, go-getting, strong, humble, rooted person if it wasn't for everything that I've, gone, that I've been through, I mean, not just me, but my family. And I think I have a special view on this because... I am an undocumented immigrant from northern Westchester. That's crazy. because, Like my mother is a housekeeper for like multi-millionaires. And so that is the reason why we're able to afford to live. You know, my parents own a home in Bedford. And, you know, like I was sheltered for a lot of my life too. Like my best friends are very, very wealthy. And so I, I feel uh, what I feel for this country is right now, I love, I love this country and all the opportunities. Like, you know, if what I've seen with my parents and with myself and that you don't get anywhere else is, I mean, at least in Ecuador is because of the, you know, I guess you could say the government here is corrupt too, but you know, in this country, if you work hard, well, in my experiences and my family's experience, if you work hard, you will advance. And that is something that I respect and I want to be a part of. I understand that people, you know, 
people are swayed by media. The world, not just the United States, but the world itself is becoming more and more diverse. People are marrying into other, you know, obviously into other races and the world is just becoming more brown, you know, whether people want to admit it or not. And so I, I think that could be a very scary, daunting um idea for some people um it's terrifying for white people it's terrifying yes it's terrifying and and you know i i don't want to you know disregard their you know for feeling that way and so i understand i I want to understand i want to be a team (laughs) i want to keep fighting for you know not just this fight this immigration fight is not just going to benefit immigrants it's going to benefit everyone it's in everyone's interest and benefit to just accept it. Your story, and like you said, there are 800,000 stories like yours. And um, I just feel like maybe, just maybe, if people have a sense of humanity in them still, and I'm beginning to wonder if they do, but maybe <sighs> if they do and they hear a story like this, it will change their minds. That whole concept of cognitive dissonance, like you're a racist person, you don't like yeah. immigrants, you're, you want to build a wall, whatever. And then, like, you hear somebody's story, and you're like, oh, there's a person who actually would be harmed by these policies. You have to hold those two conflicting things in your mind at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, oh, and if you think about it enough and if it bothers you enough, it might move you in a direction. I not only want to shout out Neighbors Link in Mount Kisco, um, but I also I want to really take a moment to, to shout out Westchester County as a whole. Um, ever since I was... Ever since I came out about my came out came out about my status in high school, <laughs> um, I just felt such an overflow of support from my community, um, from the Northern Westchester Hospital, the local hospital in Westchester, um, the Boys and Girls Club, Neighbors Link, um, all the organizations, the private you know organizations that you know gave me money for school and heard my story and you know. There, I, there is hope because my community says there is because my community, you know, and that is why I want to have the opportunity to give back to the community that has always loved me and pushed me forward and has rooted for me. And, and so if there's a community like that, I know that there are others. There's hope, I think. Again, my thanks to Andrea for being so transparent for being so brave, for telling us her story in full, despite the potential consequences. Andrea no longer works for Neighbors Link, but she still lives in Westchester, and she still does her activist work, and I wish her all the best. Special thanks to Hannah Bingman for the music from her 2005 album, Right, Right Now. The song was finished, fine, done. So concludes this episode of What We Will Abide. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, you can find older episodes on your favorite podcast delivery machine. I will be producing new episodes in the coming weeks and months. And thank you for listening.